Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here at Harvest. And I want to, um, well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn to Acts chapter 7. That's where we're going to be um, for the majority of our time this morning. Um, but I want to also ask us a question uh, to really get into the nitty-gritty of our time this morning. When you are corrected, when someone rebukes you, how do you respond? Super fun to think about that. It was fun for me to think about it the last two weeks. Um, what's, your, what's your gut response to that? So uh, a couple weeks ago, Jake from Young Life, the area director, was here and shared about Young Life with um, us as a church in that ministry. That's a ministry that's near and dear to my heart. I was on uh, staff with Young Life for several years. And a couple area directors before Jake uh, we had a new area director um, for East Clark County, and I, my role was to oversee Camas High School and that, like, they called it that club or that ministry and that group of students. And so this new area director had heard about, like, what we did on Monday nights, but he really wanted to come and see it for himself. And part of the reason for that is that we would meet every Tuesday morning and kind of reflect on the night before and talk about, okay, here's, here's the things that went well, here's what we could grow in, oh my gosh, did anyone get that kid's name, all that kind of stuff. So... He comes um, to that Monday night gathering, and from my point of view, everything goes great. It was an awesome night with high school students. The next morning, we meet together at Brood Awakenings um, as we met every Tuesday morning, and we're talking about the night, going through it. And it was like, oh, this went well, that went well. And then he stops, and he's like, there's one thing, Matt, that I wanted to bring up with you, though. I noticed that you led all the mixers, I noticed you led all the upfront games. You did the announcements. You led all the songs. And you did the lesson. Why is that? And I, being like 22, was like, oh, I've got a good answer. So I just want all my volunteer leaders to just be in the crowd with the kids, right? I just want them to be there enjoying everything that's happening. That's why I want to free them up just to, to be in the crowd. And he was like, oh, yeah, that, that's a good thing, I think. Like, every now and then, that's probably good. But I wonder, Matt, is there a part of you that you don't trust anybody else to lead anything other than yourself? Ouch. <laughs> and in that moment, it was like, thunk, like right into my heart, and then a twist, too. And two things were happening simultaneously in me, in, in my flesh in that moment. Part of me is like, oh, my gosh. Truer words have never been said. <laughs> like, I was like, he's totally right. He nailed me. I don't trust anyone else. And the other part of me is like, dude, you just got here. What do you know, you weird old person, right? Like, you're older than me. I'm 22. I know everything. Famous last words. Um, and it was like, both of those things were working out in me. And I wonder for each of us, when someone comes to us with correction, when someone comes to us with rebuke, if someone points out something in our life or in our faith that doesn't line up with Jesus, what is our response? My hope is, for some of us, we go, man, I want people to tell me those things, to point those things out. And I humbly want to say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. For others of us, Maybe it's that mixed bag going back and forth, and, and maybe even myself at times, 
we just want to lash out in return. Where we're picking up our story in Acts 7 this morning is these religious leaders have brought a rebuke against this man, Stephen, who is a part of the early church. But this rebuke, this correction is based on false accusations and false witnesses. But Stephen, who's one who's marked as being filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke wants us to see that over and over again, that Stephen's filled with the Holy Spirit. He ends up flipping the script on them, and he actually rebukes them in return for really the same accusations that they made against him, saying, they said to him, Stephen, you've spoke out against the temple, you've spoke out against the law of Moses and not upheld it. And then Stephen's like, actually, you guys have gotten the story all wrong. And he takes them through last week, this is where we were, the whole history of their people, and says, actually, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit, because you made the things of God the essentials, and not God himself, and in so doing, you missed out on the whole purpose, the whole reason. You killed the Savior. You've never understood. You've never gotten it. You've always had hard hearts. And as you can guess, that didn't go very well with the religious leaders in how they responded to that rebuke. Let's pick up again. Let's go back to last week a little bit. Verse 51. Here's Stephen's rebuke. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. How we're going to work through the passage this morning is kind of look at two responses. We're going to look at first at these religious leaders and their response to Stephen's message. And then we're going to look at Stephen and his response to their response. But first, we have to do some unlearning before we start to look at this passage. Um, what we, what, we have a problem, and our problem is that Disney has conditioned all of us. It's true. I, I, uh, I, I can testify to this in my own life. And how Disney has conditioned me, and maybe you as well, is that when we look at villains in a story or the bad guys in a story, we say, they're nothing like me. They're way too evil. They were evil from the beginning. And there's no sort of connection or, or uh, any way that we could see ourselves in the villain. For instance, take Maleficent, right? She wants the throne. 
Maybe that's something we can relate with at times. Maybe just in your own home you want the throne. Uh, But how she goes about doing this is she curses a baby. She ends up waiting 16 years for that baby uh, to then lure her to prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel so that she dies. And then when a prince tries to come save her, she turns into a dragon to fight him. If you're watching this and at first you're like, oh yeah, there's times in my life I want the throne, then you're like, well, if the end goal is dragon, that is definitely not me. There's something just wrong with Maleficent. Somebody didn't love her when she was young and she needs help, right? There's, there's all these things that we can just go disassociate, that's not me. But that's not what scripture does when it introduces us to a villain or a bad guy. Actually, Scripture wants them often to be a mirror to us, a window into our hearts, and to ask the question, is this me? Am I capable of this? And that's the lens that we need to look at the religious leaders in this passage this morning. Look again at verse 54 with me. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at them. When they hear Stephen's rebuke, they respond with an anger that's not just an ordinary anger. When it says gnash their teeth, this isn't just like grinding your teeth in your sleep. Like you're supposed, Luke wants you to to picture violent rage that overtakes them in this moment. That's their response to correction. My whole walk with Jesus, um, there have been areas of my faith, of my understanding, where I have been totally wrong, where I've just been off. I missed it, right? And and whether it was through uh, increased wisdom, following Jesus longer, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through members in my church or in my community pointing that out and pointing to me what's true. Like, that's been a process that I've gone through over and over again. I wonder if I'm the only one. That I've just been wrong, flat out wrong at times. And I've needed to be corrected. And what's good is God is gracious and he's faithful and he doesn't leave his followers. He doesn't leave his people in these places of just being stuck and seeing things one way without lovingly wanting to reveal himself to us, to correct us, to realign us with the truth. And this should be a place, uh, the church should be a place that fosters that kind of discipleship, right? That a place where when we are wrong, we're met with mercy, compassion, and intentional correction, And I think that there's two barriers to that, though. There's probably more, but two that I can think of to actually receiving a a rebuke and it leading to a correction that aligns us to following Jesus more wholeheartedly. And the first is this, for the individual that could end up being wrong or might not believe something that's true, uh, there's just fear in our culture of being wrong, period. And so we never actually speak up to what uh, is true. We, we think that if I'm to share what I actually think or what I actually believe or actually live my faith out in a community where other people can speak into it, I, I, I can't do that. I'm just too afraid. And for you, you might be like, oh, well, that's not me. But as I've worked with students for almost 12 years, that's very much the case for them a lot of the time. 
and I've seen that increase in the last five years, there's this underlying fear a lot of the time of, I don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, so I'm just going to hold everything in. And even if that means keeping in these wrong ideas or these wrong beliefs that I might have because I don't want it to be out there, what could happen? And I think specifically that's something in our culture and where we live that's heightened to some degree. But another barrier could be, what if you are corrected in your wrong thinking or uh, your wrong living and you're just like the religious leaders with your gut reaction and you lash out again towards them, that you're resistant or unwilling to talk it through, you're angry, you want to retaliate, unwilling to admit you could be wrong. And what's so ironic in this story with these religious leaders is that very fact. This is the religious elite that are being called out and saying, you've missed it, actually. Everything you've devoted your life to, you missed it. You missed Jesus. This whole time, you made it about so many other things. This, this isn't the atheist that's being corrected here. This isn't even like the, um, the easy-to-spot sinner where it's just like, man, their moral compass is just jacked up. No, these are the people that were supposed to be leading God's people into the truth. And when they're met with a correction, what they do is they lash out in return. And I think this exposes one of the frightening realities that Scripture points to time and time again is that those that seem to have it all figured out can often be the most resistant to the Holy Spirit. I know it's a dangerous place for me in my life when I think I have it all figured out when humility seems to be the first thing to go, when I stop being a learner, when I stop being a student, when I stop being someone who wants to be corrected by the Lord and by my community so that I might follow Jesus more wholeheartedly. Proverbs 12.1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> Right? Like, Proverbs, can, Proverbs has no problem just, like, slinging that our way. Like, if you don't love discipline, if you don't love being corrected, there's a problem. You love something else. You love staying in your stupidity. And unfortunately, I have been there far too often. Just ask my wife. <laughs> the religious leaders also show us that rejecting correction that leads to the truth is a stupidity that is flat out deadly. And we'll look more closely at what happens with Stephen in just a second. But as he rebukes them and then they gnash their teeth at him, um, he ends up getting this vision from the Lord. The Lord opens his eyes to see heavenly things. And what Stephen sees is the glory of God and Jesus standing in heaven at the right hand of the Lord. And he says this to them. He says, this is what I see. This picture of him having eyes to see and the Pharisees, the religious leaders being blind. This is how they respond. Verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
These religious leaders are so opposed to the truth, they're literally covering their ears. They physically are taking a posture of like, no, and they rush at him. Again, can you imagine seeing church leaders do this? Grab him, drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. And then there's this picture that they take off their coats and they lay them down because they know that this is going to be gruesome and grueling work. Stoning someone was not a quick process. This was going to take time and it was going to be messy. And they were willing to do that because they were so opposed to the truth. And this is a reminder that the rejection of the truth always leads to death. Always. This seems like a big rejection of the truth. Totally, it is. And it leads to someone murdered. But little rejections of the truth in our own lives, too, lead to death. It never leads to goodness. It never leads to blessing. It never leads to sanctification, but it leads to death. The awesome thing in this narrative, though, is that God is present. And even in light of immense evil and brokenness, God is working things out for good. And God is present with Stephen. And one of the things that Luke is doing is he, he uh, Greg said this week one as we were working through this kind of three-week part that Luke wants us to see the comparisons between Stephen and Jesus. And there's a slide Greg had um, from that first week that had all the different ways that they're compared. I think we have that, Jack, if you could pull that up for us. You can just look through um, some of those. There, there's so many ways that, uh, that's, that Luke wants us to see. Look at how Stephen is portraying Jesus' story. This is not an accident that things are going down this way. Luke clearly wants us to see that Stephen is a representation of Christ's continued work through his church, which has been the theme of Acts, that even though Jesus has ascended to heaven, the church is continuing to do and to teach the same things that Jesus did by the power of his spirit. He's marked over and over again, Stephen is, as one who's filled with the spirit. And in this section, we see that the spirit is sanctifying Stephen to make him more like his Savior. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen can see, but the mob is blind to the Lord. And by the power of the Spirit, Stephen could even see through the rebuke that was built on false accusations to the point where he's able to flip it onto them. But what he sees here is the glory of God, which that's like, man, that's a whole sermon in itself to, to like dive into what is the glory of God. But something I read says this, that this is the beauty of his spirit, the beauty that emanates from his character from all that he is. Stephen's eyes are open to see this glory. And with that, he sees Jesus, the one who he has been preaching, standing next to him in heaven. 
And he says this out loud to them. He says this to the religious leaders. And I don't know if this is intentional or not, but he ends up paraphrasing Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, which is the same uh, passage that Peter references in Acts chapter 2 when he preaches and 3,000 people come to Christ. This picture that Jesus has been raised to be the Lord and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is both Lord and is Christ. And, and Stephen is saying, this is true, and I see it. Like, it's right in front of me. And how ironic that it's right in front of the religious leaders, and they can't see it. It's interesting, though, there's a slight difference in our passage today from Psalm 110 and from when Peter quotes it as well. I wonder if you can spot it, because I couldn't until Greg pointed it out to me. Thank you, Greg. Jesus here in Acts 7 isn't seated at the right hand of God. He's standing. And that might be a little detail that doesn't matter. Usually details with Jesus and just in the Bible period all kind of matter though. So my guess is Luke wants us to see something here and Jesus wanted Stephen to see something and I had to look into this to see, well, yeah, why is he standing? And as I started thinking about it, I was like, well, what would get Jesus out of his seat? And as you think about it, the scene that's going on with Stephen and the religious leaders, and Jesus sees Stephen living the story that Jesus lived to, falsely accused, about to be murdered because he shared the truth. And this gets Jesus out of his seat. I've read an article on the Gospel Coalition about this section that, that said this. This was their kind of answer, um, which, man, sounds good to me, uh, for why Jesus is standing here. It is for this reason he has stood to receive Stephen's testimony and to be his advocate. He has stood that he might come forward to be the judge of those who will trample upon God's prophet. Jesus is rising from his throne to come to Stephen's defense and to judge his persecutors. Two words there that just stick out to me, that Jesus stands to be both the advocate for Stephen and to be the judge. That in that moment, Stephen knows that Jesus is with him. And as everyone else is hurling insults, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father advocating for him. And also, that this injustice isn't going unseen. That God is going to respond to this. He will do something. And I think sometimes when we witness injustice or experience it, we think it goes unseen, and yet Jesus sees the injustice. And he will make it right one day. He will judge everything that has occurred. And Stephen knows this. And I think it really ends up impacting his next words going forward. Here we see the beauty and the compassion of our God to reveal himself to Stephen this way. And, but it's after this that the mob ultimately ends up rushing him and begins to stone him. But even with death in sight, the beauty of the gospel continues to shine through Stephen as he's empowered by the Spirit. Verse 59. 
While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. These words that Stephen says here at the end of his life reflect the same words that Jesus said as he was on the cross about to die for the sins of the world. In Luke 23, 46, Jesus, it says, called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Where Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him, against them. As Stephen dies, for one, he knows who he's going to be with. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But also, he prays for his killers as they're in the process of killing him. It says while he's being stoned, like this is what is on his heart, to pray for these guys who are sinning before God in this way, and he doesn't want them to be judged as harshly as he knows God will judge them. Like, that is crazy. I don't pray for people when they cut me off driving, right? Like, and, it, and I think what we're supposed to see here is not that Stephen is some uber-Christian, but that he is one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that as people filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus' story starts to become our story as we faithfully follow him. And we see that playing out in Stephen's life. The very things that Jesus has taught, that Jesus has done and even said, are manifesting themselves in Stephen because of the Spirit to the point where the readers or the onlookers can't ignore it. Be like, this dude looks like Jesus. And this kept reminding me, as Greg read this morning, the sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. Like we see themes of the Sermon on the Mount in Stephen's final moments over and over again, that he is light in the darkness, that he is loving and praying for his enemies. And as I look at the Beatitudes, it's like, I think I see every Beatitude displayed in Stephen in his final moments through the power of the Spirit. And I want you to take a look at this with me because it makes the blessing that's attached to the, the Beatitudes even more powerful as we see what Stephen is about to step into in God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Over the years, as I've read this story and as I've often heard it preached, 
one of the big things that seems to be focused on is, wow, Stephen, like the first martyr of the church, the first one whose testimony led to his death. And then kind of like the application is for the church then is, are you ready to die for Jesus? And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's not in this passage. I think that's definitely here. Like when we see Stephen willingly go to death, um, that, that should be a question we ask. But as I've sat in this passage, what I'm astounded by, what I'm humbled by, is by how Stephen lived leading up to his death. That his spirit-led devotion, his trust in God, his love even for his enemies, and his obedience should really shake us to the point where we're like, man, th this wasn't one of the 12 disciples. This wasn't like Moses or Abraham. This wasn't Jesus in the sense of Jesus physically. But it was a normal guy who, who waited on tables but was filled with Jesus' spirit. And that this is what was produced through him, even in persecution, even in darkness, even in brokenness, even as he was heading towards his death and he continued to live for Jesus. Before we ask ourselves the question, am I willing to die for Jesus? We really need to ask, am I willing to live for Jesus? Because we have the same spirit that Stephen had. We have the same Holy Spirit living us that rose Jesus from the dead. And I don't know about you, but even though I know that's true, I often find myself saying, oh, but I can't. I just can't, God can't forgive. I can't share my faith. I can't go out of my way to pray for that person that it feels like you are prompting me to go pray for. It'd be too awkward. I can't lovingly both confront someone for their sin and, and still love them and move forward in that relationship. I, I don't know how to do that. God, it's the Pacific Northwest. We're passive aggressive over here. We don't actually confront people. But Stephen's not the hero of this story, and neither are we. As Greg said, week one, the Holy Spirit is the hero in this story. Stephen is the willing, obedient, and faithful participant in his work, even when it leads to death. Because we see that his life is marked with the participation with God's Spirit to bring in God's upside-down kingdom. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that our story is transformed to look like Christ's story. And it feels like, again, we come to another moment for the early church in Acts that seemingly should crush them. Like, this is pure evil. Like, can you imagine one of their own that they loved just died and was brutally killed? And it's, and it's near where they live how their stomachs would turn whenever they would walk past that area, the potential fear that would increase in them, the, the stress of, well, gosh, I was just sharing the good news with someone yesterday. Are they coming for me next? And yet, 
as we've seen in Acts over and over again, in the trials, in the persecution, even in death, this does not thwart our God's plans, but he is able to bring beauty from ashes. And we get a little Easter egg of this, maybe the original Easter egg in plain sight in this passage where it says, and the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while right now Saul is nothing more than a minor character in this story who's a willing accessory to Stephen's murder in the coming weeks, we will see God answer Stephen's prayer where he says, Father, do not hold their sin against them as Christ's story ends up transforming Saul's story to the point where he's a new man and we know him by Paul and who wrote most of the New Testament. And we get a little window in our passage into what God is ultimately going to bring about through this evil, through Stephen's death. But we will see next week, this does rock the church in a big way that it leads ultimately to a huge persecution that sends them scattering from their homes. But as they flee their hometown, they don't leave empty-handed. They carry the gospel message with them, and they start taking it into new regions. It's through Stephen's death we start to see the beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus' final command to his disciples where he says, take the good news into all the world. That this persecution, Stephen's death, leads to the gospel going out to the ends of the earth and coming even to you and me. And this wasn't some strategic plan that like Stephen had all laid out, like, okay, if I preach this, they're gonna reject it, and then ultimately I'm pretty sure they're gonna kill me, and then the gospel will go out. No, like I don't think he had this all laid out and all planned out. Stephen's goal, though, was to glorify God in how he lived and ultimately in how he died, to walk by the Spirit and to reflect his Savior and God in his goodness and sovereignty brought about all the rest. And it shows us again that God loves to use faithful people, the faithfulness of his people, to produce kingdom fruit. And here's where I want to end. I want to end with this question for us here, Harvest Church. Are we a people whose story is constantly being transformed by Christ's story? And that's a big question. And so I kind of wanted to give us a little, a couple prompts, a couple questions to a couple indicators of like, is this true of me? Like, God, is, is, is my life becoming more and more? Am I reflecting Christ? And these aren't all the perfect examples to, to kind of get the gamut of, of is this true or not? But I think that there's some of the things we see in this story so Harvest, in every situation we may face, do we have a longing for Jesus to be glorified and reflected in our lives? Do we extend forgiveness and grace to those who have wronged us? Maybe even in the midst of them continuing to do wrong to us. When suffering is at hand, are we submitted to the Father's will? Are we running after Jesus with endurance and perseverance that can only be because of his spirit in us?
And even if you're here this morning, and as you look at that, and you're like me on a given week, and you're like, crud, I answered no to each of those questions this morning. Here's the hope. For one, let's not be like the religious leaders and shut our ears. If we see that our story, that maybe there's something we've missed or gotten wrong, isn't lining up with Christ's story, let's, re- let's repent, let's turn to Jesus and fix our eyes on him and say, God, if there is any wrongdoing in me, would you weed it out and make me obedient to you? It's awesome that our God is abounding in grace, that he disciplines us for our good, and that he, he ultimately is the author and perfecter of our faith as well. So even when we fail, he is strong. He is good and mighty to save and able to redeem, that he can take the most broken of scenarios and through his sovereign plan lead, bring it about to lead to the gospel going out into all the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you are a God who makes yourself known to us. Lord, I, uh, so oftentimes I forget that you are with me, that you're with us. And I'm thankful for this picture of your withness with Stephen in his, his most crucial hour where potentially there could be fear, anxiety, doubt, you made yourself known and he faithfully walked with you. Lord God, would you increase our vision to see you at work in things that seem super small and then in the most dire of situations in our lives too, would, would you help us, Lord, to receive correction in a way that leads to righteousness and to truth? Help us not to be stiff-necked. Help us not to be hard-hearted and to just assume all the time that we, we've wrapped our mind around either how to live or what it looks like to follow you or our understanding of your word. We thank you that your word pierces through bone and marrow to our very soul and that our lives are a process continually of coming into the truth. Would you sanctify us and grow us? Would this be a place, would we be a people where we both can hold the tension of lovingly correcting one another, coming to one another with mercy, with grace for the other's benefit and good? And also would we be people that want to grow, that want to see the error of our ways? We need your help in that, Lord, because I know I'm fickle and I like things my way, but we need things to be how you have planned them out, what you have set in front of us, the blessings that we see in the Beatitudes, Lord. We want to take hold of those and living and live as your people. In your name, amen.